Our passage this morning is Romans 9. Finally, after all the build-up, here we are. There's no turning back now. We are in Romans chapter 9, and this morning we're just going to cover verses 1 through 5. We're actually going to spend three weeks in Romans chapter 9, not just a single week. So no one can accuse us of not having spent time in Romans 9. It will not be said of us that we've not looked at Romans chapter 9. Young Christians, young theologians, let's begin with you this morning. How does Paul feel about everything that he says to us in our verses? What does Paul feel? Listen for feeling words. And actually, this would be a great thing to draw. How does Paul feel? Or to paint, or to write a poem, or a story about. But to look in an unusual way at how Paul feels about what he writes to us in this part of his letter. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus for those who are unclean and who need his purification and his life. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Oh Lord Jesus, you are blessed forever because you are the fullness and the radiance of God's glory. You are the fullness of his word. Every word he ever spoke, you wear in your flesh. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see you again in these verses this morning. Show us our need, allow us to feel the weight of it, and then allow us to feel the relief of your love. And if you'll do all of this for us, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? <clears throat> well, I have a confession to make this morning. I've been carrying around this dark secret long enough, so I thought this morning it's as good a time as any to come out with it and admit to it. I love romantic comedies. I've said it and I'm glad. I, I don't feel anything anymore. I have very little emotion. Out of necessity... I taught myself a few years ago to turn my emotions off. And the trouble is I can't figure out how to turn them on again. I can't find the switch. So I have to go to extremes in order to feel anything. So you put in a romantic comedy and I cry like a girl. <laughs> and it feels like what I remember normal being, or at least close to it. And even though it's fake, at least I feel something. 
It's like artificial emotion, emotional transfusion. But I'm trying to learn to feel again. And that's exactly what Paul wants to teach us in this part of the letter. In fact, Paul is going to try to force us to feel. He wants to be sure that we feel the right way about the right things. This is a very emotional subject we're entering upon and talking about the doctrine of election. And Paul doesn't shy away from his own very strong feelings. We're coming to them in verse 2. So for those who want to be stoic about the doctrine of election, Paul is not. Stoicism and election do not go together. One of the reasons Paul is so transparently emotional, uncomfortably emotional even, is he's being accused. Now, he's he's just written at the end of chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can take us away from the love of Christ, but he anticipates a real objection. Then what about the Jews, Paul? How do you explain them? Isn't God guilty of just that, Paul's opponents were saying? Isn't he guilty of taking his love back from the Jews? Doesn't your gospel, Paul, mean that God has divorced his people? What kind of gospel exactly is this? And you're no better, Paul. You have turned against your own people. So right off the bat, Paul is having to put up something of a defense. He's got to answer these charges. And so he says, I wish, I wish I could be cut off from Christ for my kinsmen and my brothers. I'm not at all happy about the unbelief of my brothers, but there isn't anything I can do about it either. And that's what Paul wants us to feel. He wants us to feel... At the end of our knowledge and at the end of our ability and the end of our intellect to reason this out. So we have to rely on revelation. Remember, Paul didn't think his way to Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to Paul. So now Paul wants us to feel the end of our strength so that we have to look for salvation outside of ourselves. And election is the nerve center for all of those feelings. Because one of the things that God gives us in election is he allows us to feel the dead heart. I came to believe in election by doing evangelism, not by reading a book, the way many times it happens. I was telling a friend the good news that Jesus is God's provided sacrifice for Our great sin problem. His death is our release from sin. And none of it registered. Nothing in my friend's heart would hear the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness. And Jesus as the atoning sacrifice to be our forgiveness. I remember seeing this iron-clad heart not able to absorb or consider, or respond to any of it. And at that moment, I literally said to myself, Ah, I have to believe in election now. That was it. There there was no choice for me. There, There was no turning of the heart that 
either my friend or I could stir up. That really is the shape of what Paul is giving to us here. Look, in election, God is showing us the deadness of our hearts in sin. And you have to feel the leaden weight of it. You have to carry it around in frustration for a bit. You have to get up close and to see just how dead is dead for yourselves. And only election allows us to feel how dead is dead. We need election because the heart is so dead it misses the obvious. And that's verse 4. Here's all the things that God has given to the Israelites. There's a whole list of things. They were given sonship, adoption, he says. He claimed them to be his people. That was the exodus, bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them under his fatherly love and care. They had the glory of God, probably a reference to the pillar of fire and cloud leading them through the wilderness. And settling over the tabernacle, the people lived in the presence of God's glory. They had the covenants, the covenants of relationship through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. By the way, they weren't separate covenants. They all worked together as preparations for the one covenant of grace and the life and the work of Messiah. They had the giving of the law to teach them God's heart. And to show them how far removed their own hearts were from his heart. They had the worship which joined them to God in need and love. They had the promises that spoke of Messiah's coming. They had the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through whom the promises were passed down. And they had race, a racial identification with Messiah who was one of them, but for all of it, they missed Jesus. Everything Israel was given was meant to direct them and emphatically point them to Jesus, but their hearts would not see Him. Their hearts would not embrace Him. Their hearts would not love and rejoice in Him. Their hearts were like countless inns. With no vacancy, the doors slammed shut and locked and bolted. How do you miss the obvious? My brother tells the story of babysitting his pastor's kids one evening. And he was sitting on the couch with the youngest child, four years of age or so. And they were watching a children's television program. You know, one of those educational programs that asks leading questions in order to bring the child to a point of discovery. So the host was asking these leading clues. What has scales and fins and swims and lives in the sea? And the child said, "Mm, a bottle of milk. And my brother got so frustrated, he didn't even try to lead the child back through the clues. He just corrected the answer. No, 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 not a bottle of milk. I think he even got the milk out of the refrigerator. This is milk. It doesn't live in the sea. It doesn't swim. 
How, how is it that we miss the obvious? How could Israel have missed what had been laid out to them progressively for millennia? Deadness. Dead hearts. Can you feel it? We, we need election because the heart is so dead, it rejects true righteousness. Paul's whole theme throughout the letter has been the need for righteousness. In chapter 3, he says, no one is righteous, not even one. So God's answer to that is he sends the lacking righteousness into the world. It's in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, meaning you don't have righteousness in yourselves. This righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus comes as righteousness saturated flesh. He comes as the righteousness so absent in us. And His righteousness is our righteousness by faith. But Israel here is a portrait of us all. Because we would rather invent a righteousness of our own than trust in the righteousness that He gives. Any righteousness other than His, that's the righteousness I want. We love to invent righteousness for ourselves. I'm going to educate my kids the right way. The way Jesus would educate my children. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to vote conservatively or progressively. I'll vote the way Jesus would vote. I'm going to be active about the right causes. The same causes Jesus himself would take up. I'm going to take to myself practices of piety that have to impress Jesus even though he didn't give them to us. These are not the things he's prescribed for us to do, to draw near to him. I'm going to know a lot about theology and scripture, but bear little fruit, little outward fruit that looks anything like the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We are tycoonish suppliers of manufactured righteousness. In 1982, the German filmmaker Werner Herzog made a movie titled Fitzcarraldo, which was based on a true story. In the movie version, it's the story of a European industrialist who convinced a group of Peruvians to carry a steamship over a mountain range so he could launch it in another part of the Amazon. Now, as the event actually happened, they moved the ship over the mountain by disassembling the whole thing. They carried it piece by piece over the mountain and then reassembled it on the far side. But Herzog didn't like that version for the film, so he actually refabricated the truth of the story. And he convinced thousands of Peruvians to drag a 320-ton ship up the mountain intact. Not a piece of it was disassembled. There wasn't a special effect or a camera angle used to give the illusion of the ship being carried up the mountain. He made them do it. 
and your invented righteousnesses are tying yourself to a ship and climbing the mountain alone. And yet, we do it incessantly. Why? Why is it that both we and the Israelites are so slow to embrace the relief of full righteousness provided in Jesus? Why won't we take hold of the righteousness that God so graciously and generously gives to us in Jesus? Because the heart is dead. And dead hearts love to drag ships. Can you feel it? Can you feel the weight of your ship hanging from you as you strain up the mountain? We need election because the heart is so dead, the efforts and emotions of others can't bring it to life again. And this is where Paul's emotion floods the passage. I'm speaking the truth in Christ here, Paul says. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I swear it to you before Jesus and his spirit, Paul is saying. So I cannot be lying about this. I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is saying here, I don't know how to turn my emotions off over this. If we were in the room while Paul was writing all of this, we would think he was making a scene. You know how badly I wish my people, my kinsmen, my family, my friends, the people I know, See, his situation is the same as yours. You know how badly I wish that they would have this grace of God for themselves? I I wish it so badly that I could be made a curse for them. I wish that I could be made their guilt and unbelief and be thrown away and discarded. I wish I could be cut off for them. And the only way Paul can say this is he knows firsthand the mystery of election. By Christ's mysterious choosing, Paul was ripped out of his violent hatred for Jesus. A hatred so great that if Paul could have gotten his hands on Jesus, he'd have crucified him and buried him again. But Jesus got his hands on Paul instead. Jesus got his hands on Paul with his cross and his resurrection. And the salvation he elected for Paul, he operated in Paul. It's because Paul is amazed at election. He can be so frustrated with the lostness of people. People he meets along the way and people he knows and loves deeply. He can look back And see how trapped he was and how wrong he was. And he he can look at his present and he can see how free he is. And as he measures his own relief and rescue against the blindness and need of others, the only godly response for that is a frustration and a futility. I remember being a 12-year-old being told my parents were going to divorce. 
It was heartbreaking. World-ending, it felt. I knew Paul's great sorrow and his unceasing anguish. And then I came up with a plan. I knew how to stop it. I knew how to fix it. I'd call my grandmother in Florida. She was a child when her parents divorced, and she could tell my parents how horrible it was. She could talk them out of it. She could convince them. I stood there with the phone in my hand, but I never made the call. At the last minute, I realized my grandmother couldn't change their hearts. A grandmother's willingness, a 12-year-old boy's desperation, none of it can turn the heart of anybody. And Paul knows the same is true. For all his feeling and all his desire and all his intention, even Paul is left to be frustrated at the deadness of hearts. But Paul's frustration is not Jesus' frustration. Paul can't make himself a curse for anyone. He can't cut himself off for anyone, but Jesus can. Paul can't do anything with his great sorrow or his unceasing anguish, but Jesus can pour great sorrow and unceasing anguish out on a cross and into a gaping, ravenous tomb. Jesus can save through election. And Jesus does save through election because our inability is the place where his ability meets us and ministers to us. The incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection are all places where he makes our inability his crowning triumph. But before election can ever be a relief and a joy to us, dead hearts have to feel like a crushing burden to us. And so Jesus mercifully allows us to shudder at the enormity of our own sin so that we can treasure the enormity of the gospel that overcomes it. The surprise of the passage is knowing about election doesn't cause you to feel less. It actually causes you to feel more. At least that's the way it was for Paul, and that's the way it should be for us. Knowing what it is to feel the burden of sin lifted away from you means feeling the burden for souls more. A heaviness for souls is an indication of true joy in the gospel because gospel joy is a joy that longs to be spread and shared. So, we should pray to be allowed to share in Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Give us this, O Lord. Give us the sorrow that Paul felt. Give us the anguish consumes us 
as people of resurrected hearts. We can't be complacent about the deadness of heart all around us. Give us the anguish as those who have felt the deadness of heart. Give us the anguish that needs election to be at work in the world, setting sinners free and exalting our Christ. We pray for the anguish that will drive us to more prayer. We should pray for the turning of hearts. The frustration we feel for cement-encased hearts that cannot comprehend the love of Christ is not the frustration of Christ himself. The book of Proverbs says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He can turn it whichever way he chooses. The heart of the one who is most powerful in the world, who's an authority to himself. He's the universe in himself. And the Lord can easily turn his heart whichever way he chooses. And all the ministry of Jesus, the working out of his covenant of redemption with the Father, and his fleshly birth and his impaling on the cross, his breaking out of the tomb, his ascending into heaven, his pouring out his spirit into souls as dead as dust. Everything Jesus has done is for the turning of hearts. And that tells us how we should pray. Do what you have always willed to do, Jesus. Turn hearts and let us see. Use us for their turning by your hand. We should hold out Christ so that others can take hold of him by faith. He's the only one who can be our curse, our cutting off. So Jesus should be the only one we proclaim. He is salvation. Which means we don't need slick methods and gimmicks and tricks We don't proclaim ourselves or our church. And evangelism is not marketing. It's calling Christ's unsaved, unrevealed elect to himself. And they will recognize his truth and hear his voice as he opens their hearts. Pray for boldness, but pray for humility and love and tenderness Pray for submission to present Christ without a lot of peripheral noise. And then you'll see the elect brought out of darkness and into light. You'll see them brought from cold to warmth, from death to life. And we should pray for hope. The last piece of it all is hope. We should be filled with hope. Anguish is appropriate. It's a sizing up of the deadness that Christ must overcome. The deadness that we find so vastly frustrating. But worry is inappropriate. That's disbelief that Christ can do it. It's not merely the confession that we need Him to do it. We should enlarge our hope. Jesus knows how to bring Hearts out of their tombs. And he uses his church of untombed hearts to do it all again. And that hope should kick up prayers in us like forest fires. Hot and all consuming and unstoppable. You are our hope Jesus for ourselves and for the lost you will call. Your electing grace and strength are our hope.
skeptics, I kept thinking this week what I would ask if I were in your place, if I weren't a believer, but I was questioning these things. What would I think about as I heard this passage? I'm not sure this is what you're thinking, but maybe I came close. If, if I were in your place, I think my question would be, well, what about me? Am I elect? Has he chosen me? And here's the answer that I'm sure doesn't feel like an answer at all. Do you want to be? Do you want to be elect? Do you want to be chosen? If so, then maybe you are. Maybe Jesus is calling you and claiming you as one of his own. If you don't want to be one of the elect, then maybe not, or maybe not yet. I don't think that should bother you by your own admission. You don't want to be elect. But one of the ways we feel election reaching out for us is when Jesus makes us want what he wants. Do you want to be, do you want to be elect by his grace and his love? If there's even a glimmer, I would continue to ask, Jesus, have you chosen me? Are you calling me? Then give me the heart to believe it. If you're choosing me, then change my heart to agree and to love you in response. I had a buddy in high school, Robbie. He had the sweetest car in town, a bright yellow 1970 Dodge Challenger convertible. We used to put the top down and cruise the beach in the summer. If you're trying to get noticed by girls, it helps to have a friend with a car like that. But that's not the story I'm telling you. Robbie was one of my closest friends. I was a believer and he was not. And I witnessed to Rob all the way through high school. I told Rob the gospel countless times over four years. Four years. Actually, what I did was more like trying to argue Rob into the kingdom. I tried to debate him into belief. I actually thought I could wear him down so that he would just give up exhausted and believe in Jesus. All right. I believe in Jesus now. But for all of my efforts, Rob couldn't believe what I was insisting on for him. And it was frustrating. And all my love for him, and with all the attempts I made at it, I couldn't make Rob believe, but I tried. The backstory to that is Rob is actually the reason I hated the doctrine of election when I was growing up. I had a a high school Sunday school teacher, a man named Paul McCrath, who used to teach us the doctrine of election, even though our church did not believe the doctrine at all. And even though every kid in that class fought him tooth and nail on it. And Paul would just patiently say, it's in the Bible. I don't know what to tell you. It's there. One day, I pulled Paul aside. He, he was a close enough family friend that I could level with him. And I said, look, I want you to understand, I hate the doctrine of election because of my friend Rob. Why am I chosen 
and Rob is not. And Paul said, there's no answer to that question. You're asking things that we can never know. Yeah, well, I still don't like it. Well, fine, you don't like it then. But we don't know what God will do in his grace. And I'll pray for your friend. I'll put him on my prayer list. And Paul McGrath had this prayer list that was pages long. And once you're put on his prayer list, you never come off. So to this day, my high school Sunday school teacher prays for my high school friend every Tuesday morning. We graduated from high school. Our senior summer, we spent cruising the beach in Rob's car. And I continued to try to argue him into the kingdom. It was my last shot. I threw everything I had at it. Every argument I could come up with, I tried to use on him. Nothing. There was no movement at all. The summer ended. We went our separate ways. We went off to college. He went in-state. I went out of state. And the first semester of freshman year, Rob gets converted. (laughs) Can you believe that? After all that work. And I didn't get to be a part of it. I had argued and articulated endlessly. And he goes off and gets converted with the help of someone else. And it didn't stop there. His father was so impressed and moved by the changes he saw in Rob. His father was converted a few years later. A few years after that, Rob goes off to the seminary that I attended. A few years later, he graduated. He's a pastor in a state not far from here. And the end of that story is, I believe in election. Can you feel it? Can you feel the strength of Jesus to overcome the dead hearts that you can't budge? That is election. Grace kissing inability. It's the only kiss that can awaken unwakeable deadness. Can you feel it? Can you feel how we need it? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord, show us your glory in this, in your crucified, risen strength, and with your electing love, overcome the deadness of hearts for family members and loved ones and dear friends and neighbors. Place your kiss of grace on them and surprise us with those you have elected and overcome the hardness of our hearts. Burden us because of the danger of sin and the joys of the gospel. Give us the great sorrows of Paul. Fill your church with unceasing anguish while we rejoice over the wonders of Christ. Make us helpless, weak, but willing evangelists holding out Christ and fill us with radiant hope until Christ returns. We groan 
And we ask all this in his spirit.